Welcome to the Bad Vibes Club. So this is the last of three conversations with my friend and the wonderful artist Andrea Frankie. Today we talk about Eve Sedgwick's essay. Well, actually, it's a chapter of a book, and the book is called Touching Feeling. Um, and the chapter is called Paranoid Reading and Reparative Reading, or You're So Paranoid You Probably Think This Essay Is About You. In the conversation, we talk about paranoia, obviously, and what reparative reading might be. We also talk about Andrea's work with post-truth, and we talk about people like Bruno Latour, we talk about universalism and rationalism, and we talk about strong and weak theory. It's a great conversation. This was my favourite of the three, and we kind of really got somewhere, I thought, with this. So I hope you enjoy it. Uh, like I said, this is the last one with Andrea, but I'm sure she'll be back on the podcast soon. Okay, bye. You recommended this text, and this was one of the first texts I read when I got into queer theory because it's quite a canonical. I think specifically in London, I don't know if it's like, but in like the London scene, people really. They love Cedric in general, or this 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 text. I think like I think because I spend this time um, reading a lot about. It, I think epistemology of the closet is a much more important text but yeah. for some reason i don't think if it's like a goldsmith thing yeah, or, but this yeah. this text is quite important here um, and well, sorry just to be clear the paranoid text or the touching feeling book the paranoid text just oh, the paranoid text oh, right, okay. not the rest of the book i yeah. never heard anyone mention the rest <laughs> of the book which i have to say just quick note the introduction of that book is amazing the section on texture is one of the best things i read this month i think okay is, so uh, we're not going to talk about it, but people should read that. Yeah, sure. Um, so it was really so I read it for year, like about four years, five years ago, and I didn't. It, it it's just a text that I I read and I just moved on sure. and I never yeah, thought yeah. about it again. And then you recommended it, and I just got obsessed with it because I keep trying to read it and I didn't get it and I couldn't get why you wanted to read this and um, and I think sometimes um, I really enjoy these feelings of like this object that is like clearly not mm. wanting to talk to me and I'm desperately <laughs> wanted to talk to it. <laughs> it gets me really frustrated. So I started researching and I read the three, there's three different versions of the text, uh, which are quite different. So one is from 94, is an introduction, it's just nine pages, an introduction for a, a journal. And the second one is an introduction for a collection of essays on uh, close readings of the novel, which makes so much more sense to me than, uh, than this version. And then I still like read like black feminists talking about this text and like contemporary really? feminists talking about this text and all this and I'm just I still cannot get this text and then yesterday or the day before I found this conference in Reading Reading University of Reading it's a whole day conference they held last year about just this essay wow and it's super interesting because they got quite a few people that were studying of uh, students of Sedwick's or colleagues of Sedwick to come and speak and, and the conference uh, starts by like Making these two you points. found a text of this conference? Sorry. No, I, found, I, I watched the whole conference. Oh I watched like God. eight hours of lectures. <laughs> <laughs> this is how obsessive I got with this. Fucking hell. Okay. <laughs> and they start by saying like, well, um, what is the argument of this text? No one knows. No one has figured out what the argument of this text. I wrote the th three points. So the first one is like, no one knows what the argument is. The second one was people. People that have like committed themselves to read this text and like, make a career of this text where like it's so hard to stay with this text it's so hard to read it and your mind not to go somewhere else mm. it's just a really hard text 
to read. And then the third one uh, they finish is like, and what is reparative, reparative reading? No one knows. Okay, no one yeah, has yeah, figured that's out. Usual. That's good to have that confirmed. And I just, it was just the most amazing feeling of like, oh, that's great. It's not. And then what then you get by the text, from the text, when you just get rid of those things were the things that I would look for in a text. Yeah. Which is, yeah, the argument, this kind of <laughs> model that she's proposing, but she never actually tells you what it is. And then the fact that the text never fully lets you in, in yeah. a sense, it's always escaping from you. So, I, th I yeah, I thought that was a good, yeah, that was that's a good, good. starting point. Of like <laughs> yeah. So, the, um, okay, well, m maybe now we can go back to this original thing. Was this text was chosen by me, whereas the other texts that we've read in the past two podcasts have been picked by you. And the reason I recommended you this text was because uh, you had designed some workshops about post-truth for, for school children, but also for university students. Yeah. Could you describe that project and then we can kind of use this text maybe to like bounce between talking about post-truth and talking about paranoia and reparative reading? Yeah, so the post-truth um, project, which is still ongoing, but I don't know what form is gonna it's gonna take it's um the idea was that we're living in this moment when like, people are just throwing and i think lots of people are working around it you know these terms like post-truth and fake news and and there's a sort of a panic it's like an epistemological panic as if we used to know the truth and now all these weird people have come and they kind of disrupt it and we lost it <laughs> and and i think to me it has like really um given rise to a really conservative left, mm. which annoys me uh, because I think uh, we were on the right path and and with all the kind of feminist questions of how truth is constructed or like science studies. And, um, and I think suddenly to give that up and, and say this is the same as someone paying trolls to kind of publish fake news is a really complicated thing. And I think it's... It's almost adorable when people, I've just been reading, um, The Guardian had like, I don't know, five different reviews this month about people writing about post-truth. Mm. When people say it's all like the, the, the um, post-structuralists are to blame, or it's like it's all Derrida's fault, which I think is amazing because <laughs> you have to be an academic from the humanities to think that Derrida has any impact in the world. <laughs> just like, if, if only, if only those people hadn't, Invented postmodernity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, so I'm quite interested in, in this thing. And then I, I thought that instead of that, a, a more interesting way to address it is to share the tools, share the tools that all those I don't know intellectuals or, um, or theorists had had raised with with other people and with children especially, just because I think. Um, I'm quite interested in working with children, especially in a in a political way, in a way that kind of enable them to be political beings. So, the post truth was a series of um, three of workshops. There were like three modules, and the first one was um, looking at queer feminist and black epistemologies. So, okay, like a concept from a different uh, theorist, and just go through them with the children. And then the second one was. Um, one day was on algorithms and how they work, uh, proxy, what are proxies and what are different models and how they affect um, knowledge production. And then 
video essays, which is a form that I'm fascinated because my son is fascinated with uh, YouTube mm. essays. And I just feel it's like if Adam Curtis had taken over production of knowledge of the world, which yeah. is a terrifying thing. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the idea was like to give children kind of uh, literacy and video essay so they can understand how cuts work and how it's easy it is to like make a conspiracy or like a weird uh, argument through video because mm. it's such a convincing um, medium. And then the third one was one was looking at different ways that um, different areas of knowledge um, categorize something as truth. So, you know, how journalists uh, fact check something is quite different from how sociologists were established the truth, which is quite different from which um, I think most looking quite a lot of social science, but also like science. So there's like sci scientific um, ways of constructing the truth. The truth are quite specific and it's really amazing that people assume they overlap when they don't. Right. And I think that's always fascinating when like a science says what the social scientist is saying is stupid is because there's it's a, it's a very different way of... What's, uh -huh. what's a good example of um, that difference? Like what what's the way that science maybe confirms a theory as opposed to social science? Okay, I'm not, I'm not sure. Not I'm going to get this example, on the top of my just, mind. Yeah, but, sure. Because um, I, I haven't actually run this workshop. Yeah, oh, okay. I run only the first two ones. <laughs> uh, for example, science has a lot to do with strong theory, which is something that we're going to come back in the essay. So you come back with a theory to explain, um, I don't know, an, uh, a phenomenon. Fa phenomenon. Yeah. Very good. And then um, you test it. So you have this hypothesis and you test it. But then it also has to like appear and be confirmed in like a larger scale. So yes. when you do the theory of evolution, it's not only that you make this theory and then you test it with fossils, it's that you see it repeated when we do, when we see antibiotic resistance develop or you see it. So you, you, you see how it kind of develops to a larger, larger scale theory of the world. Yeah. Um, so it is really fascinating because it has a futurity embedded to the theory, which I quite love. So yeah, that's interesting. As in, it has to kind of be assumed to always be true. Yes. And then when it's and then obviously the whole point of science is that at some point in the future it might be refuted, and then it would no longer have ever been true, in the original sense that it's posed. Yes. So it's quite a different. It's got an interesting scale, and it's always like being being tested in that way. Uh, yeah. Which I think, like social science, is is a lot more um, restricted. So, if you were doing like a sociological paper on, for example, how working class children and middle class children learn in school and behave in school, you're um, you have you have an hypothesis and you have data, and what you're testing is if that repeats in a similar situation in another way. But it's, it it almost doesn't it doesn't have that kind of relation to strong theory in that sense is a lot more yeah. localized. I don't think it really scales up to the way of saying like, oh, so working class children or people will develop in those ways and those ways need to reflect these like assumptions of working class subjectivity or yeah. patterns that we saw. Like it, it might be that sociological evidence like that, like a study showed or several studies showed that this was the case in this situation and that you might use that to make policy or to promote different kinds of education or whatever. But that wouldn't ever mean that that theory had to account for all working class children and all middle class children. Or how the subjects develop in history. So, yeah, 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 yeah sure. Yeah, so yeah. I think it's a lot more horizontal and scientific theory is more vertical. 
Yeah. But that I just invented now while I talking really to like you. I like that, yeah. It's so. great. <laughs> Let's stick with that. <laughs> You've done two of these workshops with school children in... Belfast. Belfast. Um, so it was... Um, as workshops gone, like some things went really well and some things were really bad. So we're kind of rethinking it. And I think I might do it not in school settings, but in gallery settings, because it was quite hard to do that. Just working with children is hard yeah. and I'm not that good at it. And in a school, there's another level of dynamics that you should account for that yeah. I don't have the skills to. Um, so maybe next year. But And then the idea is that it's going to be a book oh, great. For, for children to read. So... They kind of lead to revolution. I've read this text with groups about four times now. And basically I just chopped off. So the, the essay is in two parts. One part is about defining what paranoid reading is. And then what the second part is a, a woolly, yeah, kind of definition of what reparative reading might be. Which has interesting sections about the depressive position from Melanie Klein's work and stuff like that. But in, in essence, I just chopped that bit off and we just have read about paranoia so like th three of the reading groups out of four have just been about the paranoid reading because i think it's such an interesting way of understanding what i would call like the metaphysics of critical theory or what you might just call like the priorities of critical theory and then it's these definitions of what paranoia is that i just think are so great like paranoia is a strong theory which we can talk about and paranoia is a theory of like revelation or of uncovering and I've always thought that about like certain forms of truth and conspiracy theories as a form of paranoia is a classic one. It's like revelation. It's like, aha, look what's underneath, what's hidden underneath. And I thought they were just really interesting in relation to our conversations about post-truth as you had a really good definition of post-truth that I trot out to people, but I get it a bit wrong, which is that post-truth is a little bit like post-modernism in the sense that when people talk about post modernism they seem really sad for the loss of modernism but I guess the point is that postmodernism's pointing out that modernity never really existed in this in the way that it claimed it did and post-truth is doing the same thing for truth it's like it's actually saying like ah oh, like I'm not sure truth really ever existed in the way that we might have claimed or or hoped th that it did but that doesn't mean that truth doesn't exist or that we can't find things that are more or less true or, or I don't know yeah but maybe yeah. you could talk about that because you, you had a good definition yeah I think no I think that's right I think and I I heard someone uh, using these and I, I haven't I've never actually checked it because I really like the definition <laughs> but um, uh, she was saying and I'm, I'm, I don't remember her name but uh, she was talking about the post in postmodernism and in postcolonialism being something that doesn't mean after but means an examination. So postmodernism yes. is built on an examination of modernism and postcolonialism is not like colonialism is gone. And that's what's interesting. It's not like um, when you talk about like compare with decolonizing, for example, but postcolonialism is this moment when you're examining what are the consequences of colonialism and mm. what does it mean? And I, I thought that's such a, yeah, post-truth, when people use it as their worst truth and others not, it's just such a dead end. Yeah. And it's not, it doesn't give you, first it doesn't give you any like room for like political change, but it also doesn't give you any room for like intellectual examination, which I think post-truth has been this moment where we're all collectively engaged in this kind of redefinition of, or our understanding of how truth is constructed. Like I think the idea that 
before um, only certain people were allowed to question truth. So you have like Bruno Latour and you have all these people and they can do it because they're really smart and they are a specific type of people. And then suddenly when like this gets distributed to the masses, then it's like, no, leave truth alone. (laughs) (laughs) You haven't gone to university. And I think it's a really, (laughs) it is a really problematic um, way of thinking. And there's this um, scholar that I really love who used to work with Latour called John Law. And he wrote this book about called Against Method Mm. quite a, quite a long time ago, maybe like 10 years. And it's really funny because you can see he's pointing to this moment when he's saying, He's a sociologist and he's saying more and more you talk to people and you realize they have lost faith because we we keep telling them like the economy is getting better, your lives are getting better and they're looking around and they're like, no, they're not. My life is going to shit. Like, what are you talking about? And and this moment has been building up. So I feel like it's really, um, it's not only unfair, but it's really stupid to to then claim these people don't know what truth mm. is. It's like they live truth every day mm. and they've been told that's not real. And at some point you get fed up. Mm. And I think then you get space for like paranoid readings and conspiracies because you're so, um, when someone has been gaslighting you for like 30 years <laughs> and telling you your life is getting better and you're looking around and you're like, my life is not getting better. And then someone comes and says like, yes, your life is getting worse because... I don't know, yeah. like Mexicans or brown people yeah, sure. or whatever have been doing this to you. You just believe it because no one has ever reflected what you have been understanding as reality for so long. And again, because the angle that I was taking on Eve Sedgwick's essay is that what what was so helpful for me is that it, it got me into Sylvan Tompkins' affect theories. And Sylvan Tompkins was a psychologist and kind of psychoanalyst. And a cybernetic guy. I yeah. didn't know that. I'm quite well, excited was, about that. Everyone was cybernetic <laughs> in the 50s. Um, so I, I got really into Tompkins and his theories of affect, which I think are really useful when you're thinking about why certain forms of knowledge production are really popular right now. Like why the, yeah, say like why the video essay is really popular or why someone like Jordan Peterson is so popular. And that's, and that for me was really helpful, not only, I mean, in like a general way in, in thinking about the world, but also, I mean, I might have said this to you already, like Sedgwick's essay, like made me think about, I've been running the Bad Vibes reading group since 2014. So I've read and like, you know, and we also read texts and talk about them and me and Ross do that as well. And so I've got all these texts that I read and like probably half of them are in the paranoid mode as described by Sedgwick. So I'm reading this description of paranoid you know, paranoia and thinking, yeah, like all of these texts are like revelatory and, and trying to expose something and trying to tell me that everything I've thought before is wrong and actually hidden underneath all this stuff is this real truth. But obviously, like, none of that has played out in my life in the sense, I mean, you know, it changes the way I think and it, it makes me have interesting ideas about things. But the reason I'm reading these texts can't be because I really think that they have like some kind of... um revelatory answer that will uncover or rip apart the world as we know it and it must be for something else and I think that it must be for something effective it must be for something emotional and the reason I run a reading group and the reason we read texts and talk about them is because of the like feeling of reading and that and the aesthetic qualities or the tonal qualities or the style like part of the reason this essay is probably like 
read over and over again is it's because it's like maddeningly written but also quite funny and like has anecdote in and kind of personal stuff it was really interesting to me to kind of expose to myself that all the things that I thought I was looking for in theory are actually secondary all the all the ideas about like truth or different ways of thinking are secondary to to my enjoyment of a text or my enjoyment of talking about a text with other people and that yeah that that kind of re-ranking of like I guess like reason versus I don't know emotion or something or I don't know how to quite phrase that but like the intellectual qualities of text versus the like pleasure I take in a text actually they're on a par or maybe even like the emotional qualities of something are more important one of the things that really interested me when I was trying to understand this this text was this kind of historical context when she's writing because she's republishing this as a kind of pedagogical, in a pedagogical uh, project. And she's talking about um, new historicism. Yes. Um, and she's, she's, when she's like describing that way of reading um, and, and thinking that she's teaching and she's, she's talking about like this academic environment, it's really, it just, I just have so many experiences of, of that when you're like reading Can in a group. you describe new historicism just briefly? Because it's one of those things that I kept Googling, kept forgetting what it, <laughs> what okay, it so, is. Okay, so I never heard the term before, so I had to Wikipedia it's an American it. American thing, right? Yeah, so, but, and I think I kind of related larger to, um, to critical theory at the time. I don't really understand what's the difference between new historicism and um, critical theory specifically, but it is a mode of like academic writing that that has this this that is that makes this effort of like finding flaws which is also a form of pleasure like you read mm. and you're just pointing how that person got everything wrong and i think especially going i just had this failed phd experience and being in the academia like this there's a an incredible amount of reward in like pointing how everybody else is stupid except you which I think is the same sort of mode of making theory. And and again, like that involves lots of pleasure and I've done it and I do know it is incredibly pleasurable. But I think what she's proposing, which is really interesting in terms of pedagogy, and I, I don't know if I ever pass that to my students, but it's that it, there's a different way of reading where you're just like reading to add things and to kind of like make new things. And there's a point when it gets just really tiring to go to a reading group and someone and all these people just agreeing that what you're reading is stupid, which is why I spend so much time with this text as well, because it would have been so much easier to say, like, Matt, what are we reading this? This is really <laughs> stupid. I don't get anything from it. <laughs> She's an idiot. You know, like, it is a, it is an easy position. And there's so many, if you want to find flaws, there's so many flaws yeah. in her thinking. But there's so many flaws in everyone's thinking. And I think, sorry, just coming back to what you said about, like, um, Aesthetics, and I think someone, I think in this conference was talking about that. that uh, what she's proposing is an aesthetics of truth instead of an ethics of truth. Yeah, and I think it goes through that in a sense that you get so much more if you just grab the things that are useful to you and expand them, and then used to build something, get larger or more interesting, or like take it to the side instead of like focusing on this kind of destructive side of. To me, that's. Although the, I understand how the paranoia applies to the conspiracy, there's a lot of what she's saying that is about not being destructive or there's no yeah. point. Like you go and then you destruct these texts and then what do you get from them? You sent me a text by Ellis Hansen, 
which is very appreciative of um, the paranoid reading text, but it makes the point early on, if you wanted to, you could kind of completely dismiss the whole text by basically saying that it falls into its own logic of, of what a paranoid reading is. And it doesn't do that. It goes on to appreciate the text in a number of different ways. But, like, yeah, I guess it's a classic example of, like, a reading group like spending like a whole week like reading and focusing on text then meeting up buying some crisps and snacks and meeting up with people just to point out that it's like has a fatal flaw and therefore has to be totally dismissed which is not true because you've read all the you've read all the words in the essay so like some of those words are going to have meaning to you and some are going to be maybe aren't going to be so useful yeah it's, it's just really funny like to think of how often like your job as a reader seems to be to point out where they've gone wrong yeah, as though that means that, like, the text isn't worth anything at all. And I guess it does relate to post-truth in that sense, in that, like, you can either dismiss all the conspiracy theories on Facebook or whatever as, like, just untrue, or you can think about, like, where they're coming from and how they're made and who is believing them and for what reason. And that is, like, an aesthetics of truth, right? yeah, rather than, like, untrue things are immoral and the truth is, like, the highest form of morality. But I think that's, yeah, I mean, that's just a hangover from... Plato or something, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Like, like, like literally, like in philosophy, like believing that the poets are all like evil and that the, the highest like value is something being true. And I think it's really interesting you're going to Plato because I think we've been talking about reading this text for like a month, so I've been through like tons of different phases of trying to get it. I've had a lot of WhatsApp messages of like, like highlighted text of different essays and stuff. Yeah, yeah and be like, yes, no, I got it. Um, <laughs> But I think one of the things that I found hard is because I don't necessarily come from that tradition. So I'm someone who comes from the margins, which is something that I didn't mm. realize until I was here. I just <laughs> discovered in the last two here weeks that... Here in this studio. Yes, exactly. <laughs> next to you. Yeah. You're like... I'm the center. You're the universe. I'm the margins. Yeah. But what do you mean? Do you mean, mean coming from Latin America to Europe? Or do you mean... Yes, and... and and being a woman yeah. and being brown and all of these things are things that I sort of understand through this passage. I was just going to share how this amazing discovery in the last two weeks that is like Peru, where I'm from, and Brazil, where I grew up, are not the West. We always think we're the West. And then I've been reading and then I've become aware that when people talk about the West, they don't include Latin America. I don't mm. know why, because I feel like we're quite in the West of the world. Oh, like literally Western, yeah, yeah. But yeah, they would say things, oh, like Western culture. And like Brazil, you know, as it's evolving, might become Western culture. And I'm like, what do you mean we're not the West? And I think my experience with race and all of these things have always been, they have been quite recent. Maybe in a way that has always me meant that I, how can I say this, like universal truth have never been something that I'm not the sort of person who's allowed to produce universal truth and I've never been and I've never been the sort of person who recognized themselves universal truth and my mom um, which is an amazing person she's a, a university or she used to teach at university so she's like really in her own way aware of like pedagogical modes and, and her point would always be it doesn't matter that this doesn't make sense to you you need to find a way in mm. because you're never gonna find something that reflects you so that idea of like saying, uh, you know, this is doesn't make sense, or this is wrong, doesn't function because there's so much authority in that discourse, and at the same time, is always is always wrong. Like we had this experience of reading Latour together, yeah. and I hated it so much. And but I can't not read it because everyone is reading. That's like main culture. So I have to find a way to understand why people like it and to understand why I don't. Get it. Why it's so hard and offensive 
Latour is so, I just want to throw these books on the wall every time I read them. I was just listening to this lecture where um, Anne-Marie Moll and Eduardo Viveros de Castro, which are people that are like, I mean, Eduardo Viveros de Castro is a Brazilian anthropologist and he's one of the main references of Latour. And they're having this conference and Latour is there. And Anne-Marie Moll, which is a philosopher that I love and who is also a student, are saying, why do you use we like that? It's so offensive the way you use we. To Latour, they're saying this. Yeah. And I was like, yes, exactly. It's so offensive the way he used the word we. And Latour was like, no, it isn't. And then all these white French dudes raised their hands and they were like, no, it isn't. And there were like this woman and this Brazilian anthropologist saying like, how is this not visible to you? That this is, it just makes it so hard to read your books. And I think having to negotiate those things all the time mm. when you're trying to access this knowledge that is considered universal and canonical just means that maybe you always have to do reparative reading, yeah. in a sense, whatever that means. And you've always been post-truth because the truth is... The truth, as supposed by Western universalism, has never been obvious to you. And you've never been able to instantly understand it as truth. You've been yes. understanding it as like a statement from, yeah, like a white guy or whatever, to reduce it to that. But but why do you... Someone, someone like Latour, Bruno Latour, you don't have to read him, right? Like, what, why, do you, why do you read him despite finding him really frustrating? Well, I think I, I had to read it because at that moment... We, so Matt and I went to open school list together at that moment. Uh, you and John and Ross, all our friends, were reading it. And I wanted in because I wanted to be part sure. of those conversations. <laughs> and that's how, you know, that's... Um, but John, John hates Latour. But he just had to read him. In his own way. <laughs> yeah, in his own way. But, but because he came from an anthropology background and had to read him, like, I guess when he was studying in the early 2000s, when probably this stuff was a bit fresher and a bit newer as well. Like, I came to him so late, like, and, and I'm just like, yeah, well, I'm just like classic, aren't I? Just reading this one and being like, God, this is amazing! <laughs> Whereas you read him and were just like, oh, this guy's a fucking dickhead. But you persevered because... I wanted to know why I thought he was a dickhead. Yeah, okay. Because I think that's really important. Like, when you read something and it really hurts you or annoy you. That's why, for example, I never went back to this essay because this didn't annoy me, but I also didn't love it. Mm, it was just yeah. like a, it was sort of like, it doesn't, it wasn't telling me anything that I felt I didn't know already. But I think Latour, I, it was just so puzzled. It's like, why are all these people? And it's like, he's at the time was a very big art world reference. Like lots of people it were was, like yeah, constantly pointing true. to him. Um, so it was really fascinating to me. It's like, what are all these people getting from Latour? That I'm clearly not getting it. And now I actually quite enjoy Latour. Now that I, now that I know what annoys me of his writing. He's actually one of the people that I'm using for post-truth and I'm using his his first research on like um, doing the anthropology of the laboratory and kind of talking about like how the tools that you use to kind of construct truth has all ha, have also to be considered, like how are those objects, um, or those tools constructed, those technologies mm. develop. Um, so like, it's interesting, like why do you read theory? Like, yeah. I'm obsessed with theory, I read tons of theory. I love it. I think once the pleasure of like having something that slightly gives you like a different way of seeing the world is just amazing. And I do think, again, like going back to strong theory and weak theory, which is one of the things that I think we both... Oh, we need kinda... to define what they okay. are. We didn't do it, did we? You, you define it. Okay, I just looked at it. So in Eve Sedgwick's essay, she talks about paranoia as a strong theory. A strong theory is a theory that 
defines a lot of things. It has a wide reach and a kind of almost like, in terms of paranoia, like almost a tautological aspect where things come in and they seem to maybe not be defined by it, but if you just rephrase it a little bit, then they kind of come into the fold. So a strong theory in that sense reaches everywhere. And every time you find a new bit of knowledge that you think might be contradictory, actually it gets sucked in under the strong theory. And a weak theory, which is, I think, Sylvan Tompkins again, when she's talking about this, she's saying that like a theory of affect, for example, has to be weak. It has to be very small and kind of only define a very small like situation. And it probably doesn't reach any any further than that. So I think... Is that right? I think it is right. Okay. And I think during this month of like trying to deal with this text, we had this conversation when I was um, saying that I think to me that difference doesn't make sense because I don't experience theory in that sense. I think that theory, um, you come up, you, you come across these different theories and one theory is good to make some things visible, visible and other things invisible and then other theory works and makes some things visible and other things invisible. And the, the beauty of it is that these walls, they don't build onto each other. It's not like you get all these theories together and then you have like a strong theory or they will make sense. Yeah. Like they will never, they will never make sense. And I think the more it, for example, um, about scientific stuff, I think that makes sense even at that level. Like at some point, you try to like get biology to work with chemistry, and it's really hard because mm. they're describing the world from such different positions that you just you would just almost ruin things sometimes by trying to yeah force them yeah. into each other. And in that sense, that's one of the things that to me wasn't. I think it is transformative for quite a lot of people to read that, and to me, it wasn't because I felt. That is not how how I read theory or how I understand. Yeah, you've never been looking for a strong theory because all those strong theories are so obviously coming from a very particular, yeah, like Western place or, or however. Someone like Bruno Latour, who does have quite a strong theory. Yes, that's the thing yeah. that annoys me about him totally. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, and this is, I don't, I don't, again, like I really like Latour, but I think some writers are interested in their theories becoming strong theories and they don't necessarily do this consciously but like the fact that they're interested in their theories becoming strong theories means that they're going to get more famous because they're going to hammer away at the same theory forever and that means that if you pick up any of their books it's always going to be the same theory and therefore for example in the art world you might get really into Graham Harmon or Bruno Latour because if you pick up any of their essays or books they're always posing the same thing so then you can be like oh yeah that thing is really relevant to the art world right now let's invite them to all you know create some stuff write about art come and do a talk at keynote thing at the symposium and I don't think it's their fault but yeah I just think that that's like I mean, it's, it would never happen to me. Like, I would never... And this is just like a quirk of... I just never stick with the same idea for that long because it doesn't... Ideas are interesting for a while. Like, I know that's really... That's why I'm never going to be, like, a career academic. But, like, ideas are interesting to me for a while for certain reasons, and then I move on, I guess. That's an art world thing, isn't it? I think it's an art world. I think lots of people do strong theory very yeah. badly in the art world, and they have, like, one idea, and they keep on it forever. <laughs> I'm, <hanging laughs> yeah. I'm not going to name... People, but, but your example, but you um, you had a really good example of um, where strong theory doesn't even touch the sides, as it were, like from black feminism. Yeah, right? so I was reading this incredible uh, black family American black feminist philosophy called Kirsty Dodson. Okay, and I, and I think this is like a this is um, I think that is kind of general to 
black feminist philosophy in the US and in the UK. So it's not like she didn't come up with this. It's just she just um, had a really good way of talking about it, which is this idea of you have one thing that kind of joins or that all black feminist philosophers have in common is this uh, completely refusal of fundamentalism. So there's this idea when you start having black feminist uh, philosophers in, and thinkers in the 60s, what they're pointing out is that you have this thing called women, and women as a category is a category that black women occupy in a certain way, but is defined by whiteness. So when you think women, you think white women. And then you have this category, which is blackness, which black women also occupy. But actually, when you think about blackness, you think about black men. So the idea is that then you have this subject that is a black woman that is never represented in neither of those positions, but is part of those positions and kind of can inhabit them temporarily. And that has meant that the way black philosophers have understood epistemology and knowledge is that you have all these different, I'm going to say positions, but that comes from standpoint feminism. And I think maybe that's similar, but coming from like a, I would say, whiter position in the US. Um, which is you have all these different ways of understanding the world and they don't overlap or like they overlap, but they don't make sense together. They, they, they never mm -hmm. make a coherent discourse. And you, and you, but you gain a lot or you can only understand the world by kind of like covering all these different positions, mm -hmm. which is quite exciting. Like, so black feminism never tries to come up with a philosophy. That Almost ontological, right? So they're like, they have no being that is the black woman. Whereas like there are categories of black and there are categories of woman. Yes. But black feminism isn't interested in categorizing the black woman as a as as its own category. Yeah, which I think is super exciting because they could like they could embrace that and say like no, what we're gonna say is we're gonna say black woman is different from woman and is different from blackness. So we're just gonna do this. And instead, they're saying no, black woman can can inhabit women and can inhabit blackness. And I mean. You can sort of come to like ideas of intersectionality there, but intersectionality is a strong theory, and I think it's a very complicated oh, strong okay. theory. I would say, um, so I wouldn't. I'm just saying this because I know people are gonna listen to this and say, "Oh, this is intersectionality," and it relates to that. But I don't think. What, just why is quickly, intersectionality a strong theory? Because I don't think it was done as a strong theory. So uh, Kimberly Crenshaw is was a scholar, like a legal scholar and she wrote about it in a very specific way so she talked about how you know class race and gender relate to each other and and they make something different so when you're talking about black women you're just you're not just talking about blackness and women but there's also something that happens because these two things are overlapped that make yeah. it specific i think that's what's and she's not the first person to say this people have written about it in the 60s i have lots of friends uh, in Latin America, who are always annoyed because it becomes a, it gets used in a very colonial way when people are talking about that. In Latin America, for example, and you have a history of that, people say, oh yeah, intersectionality. And I think that's what strong theory does. Mm. It just like ruins, it like, reduces things. Yeah, because it has to suck it up. So, so you can say, no, this is different. We come from a different history and intellectual history. And you're like, no, 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 no. Intersectionality. I get it. Stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think there's a lot of critique from really important black feminist scholars at the moment. So um, Akugo Mejulu and Sarah Ahmed has written about this, how intersectionality has become, this, because it is a strong theory, it has become actually a theory of erasing blackness, which goes back to, to this idea of how black women mm. maybe cannot ontologically exist. So this is a category that was written, in or like a concept that was written specifically to think about 
the experience of black women in the world. And it has become this word that actually white people throw around to like make that conversation stop. So they will say like, it would, well, we're using a paranoid, it would always most of the time be using a paranoid position when it's like you're, you're, you're making a point about something and then someone will raise their hand and be like, but how about intersectionality? And a lot of times what they mean is you're just talking about blackness, but you're not talking about gender or class. So I think Sarah Ahmed complains a lot when, um, or at least quite a, few, quite a few times of like giving lectures and talking about specific issues about black women and then, you know, a white person saying, but what about intersectionality? You need to talk about class. It's all about working class experience. It has become this thing that gets used, one, for people to claim that they're woke. So, you know, if you're like a, like a white person and you say intersectionality, you should be clapped because you know <laughs> intersectionality is a thing. And, and then second, it gets used to um, actually stop people talking about um, black women. And I think, I haven't read it, but I just, I've been, reading a lot of Emijulu lately, and she has a whole paper where she analyzes like 30 years of academic peer review papers using the word intersectionality, and like almost none of them are about black women's experience. Mm. Most of them are like kind of like bringing, again, that discourse to kind of examine white men or white women. And intersectionality is, in a way, in one way, you could think of it as like making sure that we don't prioritize one form of, I don't know, whatever, like category over another so like race or gender or class but then what you're saying is that actually what happens is it gets it gets turned into a way of like establishing a dominance so someone's talking about race and someone says we need to also talk about class which means like let's not talk about race anymore and you know it can happen i'm sure it happens in many different um permutations of that and i guess paranoid reading is like we always need to know what's behind the curtain. We always need to know what the most true thing is, and that's always going to be the most important thing. And it doesn't matter about other things, which are maybe like, I don't know, like more ambiguous or harder to pick apart, or maybe they're not going to lead to any form of new form of truth. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, I think it's super interesting. I think that's what I'm interested in, um, affect theories that are like Shana Guy's book, ugly feelings which is about like the emotions that aren't major like they're minor kind of feelings so like awkwardness or envy rather than hate and love and joy and all these like big things because they're not going to lead to any kind of extreme revolutionary state which is the classic way of thinking about certain negative emotions for example or any kind of revelatory state where they can reveal some kind of truth to you but they do have their own kind of particular qualities and that's why you would want to think about them or write about them. Yeah, I think I think the issue of scale is really interesting. I think one of the things that we haven't talked about is this context of the AIDS crisis for this mm, text and yeah. the way that, in a way, this kind of paranoid and reparative, it's applied to text, but actually she's talking a lot about activism, right? And she's talking a lot about reformism and radicalism, I think, in a way. Uh, and there's okay, something yeah. really paranoid about radicalism in a sense, that is really helpful, but it can also sometimes obscure the small things you need to do to survive and and make them look like they're less when they're actually, you first of all need to survive to be able to do anything. And I think... Because this, let's just, uh, for the listener, but the, the 
text opens with an anecdote about talking to an AIDS activist about the various conspiracy theories that are surrounding AIDS at the point where the text is written, which is like AIDS was a government conspiracy or it's been given to drug users to kill them or I can't remember what the other versions of it are. But she's saying, although they all might, may or may not be true, the issue of whether they are true or not can be separated out from what is the most important thing to be doing as an activist or, a, you know, whatever, as a friend with people who have aid to that point. Uh, and I think what she's um, said, who has a, had a long, um, I don't know if long, but like she has a, this, um, she's going through cancer while she's writing this essay. So she's also like, I guess, having to understand these things in a small scale as well. So as you know, your your body's trying to survive. What's the point of like, let, no, I don't know what's the point, but sometimes you don't have time. Like I, I yes, feel like that's it, strong, yeah. uh, a strong theory to me feels like that at some points. It's like this luxury of like being, you know, and, and I think that's why there's that, this relation to like academia and like money because you need to have a very big amount of money to be like thinking about these big issues and just like, you know, spending all your time trying to fit everybody under your umbrella so you can publish all these books and things. Well, I think um, I'm quite interested in this, this knowledge production that happens in the ground and that sometimes it's thought as naive, as, as if disconnected from bigger questions of bigger political issues. But actually, I think we don't give enough credit to people usually, and people are not. I think in general, people are not stupid. And you, for most people, survival is a real thing that happens mm. every day. And that requires a level of knowledge production and requires a level of theory making. And you're always trying to understand the world so you can, because that's what theory is, is like trying to understand the world so you can exist on it, in it. And I think the theories that get produced through those experiences, which are weak theories, are actually really interesting. And maybe they don't give you the truth, but maybe theory doesn't have to give you the truth all the time. Maybe they give you something else that is more interesting than that. Thanks so much for listening to the Bad Vibes Club. Uh, we'll be back soon with new interviews. I've just started recording. I'm really excited to share them with you. So yeah, keep your ears out. All right, cheers, bye. Bye.